Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, author and professor of Italian and history at New York University. Ruth's an expert on fascism, authoritarianism, war, propaganda, and Donald Trump. She's also the recipient of Guggenheim, Fulbright, and other fellowships. Ruth has written over 100 op-eds and essays for a wide variety of outlets, including CNN, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post, has authored multiple books, including her latest, Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present, now out in paperback with a new epilogue. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'm very excited to have you on because you are incisive and experienced in this field. And I think it's one, as we were talking just a minute ago before we started recording, that I think a lot of folks, even folks who are tuned into American politics, seem to really miss what's going on or don't want to think about it. But give us a sense of, in your experience and your education and your work, you know, how you came to a place where you now find yourself at the center of this discussion about the future of American democracy and the fight against authoritarianism. So I had started writing for CNN because I'm an academic and I had written many academic things. And I started writing for CNN in 2014 on historical things. So I already was writing when Donald Trump came on the scene. And it became instantly clear to me because of my background in studying fascism that he was behaving like an authoritarian and not like somebody running for office in a democracy. And this became stronger and stronger. And so many things began to happen 2015-16 that people were at a loss to interpret, or they just glossed over laughing nervously, such as in January 2016, when he said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and I wouldn't lose any followers. And this made no sense, because nobody of either party says such things. But Duterte says them, Bolsonaro says them. And to me, it was instantly clear the psychological and other dynamics going on. So it was my past studies that allowed me to interpret this. And then I went on to write Strongman, which is a global history of authoritarianism, and the first book to put Trump in this perspective of this global history. Right. And so, you know, in the book, which came out last year, you talk about how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, machismo to stay in power, and how resistance to them has unfolded over the last hundred years or so. Let me ask you maybe an oversimplified question. Does the current conservative movement in this country, which has taken on an authoritarian flavor, maybe it's deeper than that, survive without a Trump at its head, or has it metastasized past him? That's an interesting question. I don't even think I would use the word conservative because the GOP is a far-right extremist party. And for some time, 
there were comparative politics studies started coming out already in 2017, saying that if you line up the new GOP's <laughs> platforms, it doesn't correspond to conservative parties internationally, but it does to far-right extremist parties. And what Trump did, and this is why the leader cult was extremely important, and it always is, because these guys come on the scene, and what they do is they create a kind of home or umbrella for all kinds of existing extremists and malcontents. And in our country, we had many because we also, unusually, we have the gun culture and militias and people who are anarchists, like these sovereign sheriffs, I really think of them as anarchists, who wouldn't be tolerated other places. And he put all of those people and ennobled them and elevated them. So the leader is extremely important. And he gave permission. He showed the way of being lawless. But what's going on now is that his leader cult has continued. And it's really quite incredible that he pulled off this propaganda feat of convincing tens of millions of people he didn't lose so that they don't have to come to terms with his power being over. But the GOP is continuing this kind of authoritarian playbook in the states. So setting up a kind of system that could continue without the leader of Trump. And I think that's right. And, you know, there was that story, I think, that came out under the Meet the Press banner over the weekend that Trump is now supporting individual legislative candidates in places like Michigan. And that's one of the things that's concerned us as we're looking into 2022. And even our vast imagination hadn't really considered until a couple of months ago, which is in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, which all happen to be target states in a presidential campaign, also have pretty Trumpy Republican legislatures. Three of them have Democratic governors right now. And it could be that in 2024, they either steal it outright by saying there's another slate of electors, or they create enough chaos that, you know, it's a jump ball and God knows what happens. So what's being set up here is a system called electoral autocracy. And this is what we have in Hungary. We have it in Russia, though Russia is much more fully developed, where you have the trappings of democracy. In fact, Orban has this BS phrase that Hungary is an illiberal democracy, but he rules by decree. There's nothing democratic about this. And Erdogan has said, you know, right in the middle of his crackdown after the coup attempt in 2016, he told a CNN interviewer, oh, well, we have a ballot box here. We have elections. And so I'm not a dictator. So they come to power via elections. Now they have to keep elections going and they fix them. And this is done at the national level, but then it trickles down. You have to really pull it off. It takes some years. It's called autocratic capture, the judiciary and all the machinery of elections. And we're actually living through a historical thing, and it's not a positive thing <laughs> that we're living through. We're in the middle of this capture, and it's going state by state. And it's an assault on the entire electoral machinery, down to poll workers and poll watchers, so that they're setting up that they will be able to steal or intimidate people. Because it's not just voter repression, and suppression. It's also making people too afraid. And here we go back to guns. Like in Texas, you can have open carry. There are laws like the poll watcher who can be armed could go in the car of someone voting by curbside voting as long as there's like another voter in the car and it holds more than five people. 
So the idea is they could watch what you're doing as a voter. So here we're no longer in democracy. We're in the realm of like military juntas where they're, quote, encouraging you to vote and they're armed. I mean, look, I came up in Republican politics. I grew up in it and I worked in it for many years. I was either willfully blind or totally ignorant to the idea that the things that you're talking about, this electoral autocracy, have been in motion for decades in the Republican Party. And, you know, you talk about the judiciary. We didn't get to a 6-3 Supreme Court overnight. It took 40 years. We didn't get to these overwhelmingly Republican legislatures with gerrymandered districts overnight. It took 20 or 30 years of consistent work by Republican and conservative organizations, often in league with big corporate America, to get to these places. Have we reached a place where this was always the end goal? Or do you think that they created this and the monster got out of the cage and they can't do anything about it now? I think in certain places it was always the end goal. It hasn't been a democracy for very long until the Civil Rights Acts of the 60s. So you had all this practice in how to keep people out of democracy and silence them. So this was going on. And, you know, especially from 2012, the GOP was drifting away from democratic with a small d political culture. But what Trump did is that strong men like Trump are like a shock to the system and they energize everything and they make it legitimate to be lawless. And so everything accelerated and cohered and came together. And so now there is an end goal. And of course, January 6th broke many taboos and upped the stakes of that. So it kind of gelled. You see my book, it's a book about patterns in history. And so that's what these kinds of individuals do. They shock the system and they make what were vague, disparate impulses and projects that give them a national kind of coherence. I mean, let me say this, is that Donald Trump is no Republican, nor has he ever been. But what he saw was an available vehicle to self-aggrandizement and to empowerment. Now, I don't think he believed he was going to win in 2016, but once he did, you know, he got his hooks into it significantly. And now you see, you know, the militia people in Michigan who they plotted to kill Governor Whitmer, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You've got the QAnon people fighting with each other. You've got Michael Flynn saying, you know, don't give to Republicans. Roger Stone in Florida saying, you know, he's going to run as a libertarian to try and defeat Ron DeSantis because he's not doing what Trump wants him to. I mean, it is this really, I would use the word fascinating, but that's too positive. Are they just all nihilists and anarchists or is it all just a play for power and nihilism and anarchy is sort of in the brew? Well, authoritarians are profoundly nihilist and they want to destroy. And this goes back to fascism, which like embraced this process of creative destruction. And Mussolini defined fascism as a revolution of reaction. And that kind of captures how they shake everything up. They're like a and Trump included, they're like a volcano and they rearrange everything. But then more aftershocks come because what you're describing with Roger Stone and, and especially after January 6th, it's a profound radicalization. And so even though I've said that things cohere, things also fall apart and it's a very volatile and unstable time. So there's a show on television called Yellowstone, and it's about this family at this Western ranch. And it's very violent, and they're basically trying to protect their ranch. But 
there's a scene in it in which one of the main characters is with a young man who she's sort of taken under her wing. She's trying to buy him some clothes. He's not doing what she wants, and she tries to pull a shirt off of him. And there's a woman standing there with her phone recording it saying, that's child abuse, that's child abuse, that's child abuse. The character comes, takes the phone out of the woman's hands, smashes it on the ground, and the woman says, I don't want any trouble. And the character says, you do want trouble. What you don't want is resistance. And so my question is, how do Americans, individual Americans, resist in this space? Because to your point, it seems to be rooted in intimidation, the threat of violence, or the use of violence. So how do you resist that in a way that an individual can say, I'm willing to do that? Because as you know, it's a human nature to not want to like get beat up or thrown in a prison cell or you know thrown off a balcony. It's the politics of threat. And all authoritarian and repressive states, they use this very effectively. And ultimately, the goal is to make people self-censor, and not only speech, but actions, because they're too afraid. They're going to stay away from the ballot box. They're going to shut up. There are many people who say, I don't want trouble. I'm not going to tweet anymore. I'm not going to speak out. And that's what they want. So one thing to remember is there's always more of us than there are of them. And they have to be noisier because there's fewer of them. And in history, often just a few, relatively few number of extremists can have a big effect because they have enforcers behind them. And that's worrisome in our country because the numbers of what Trump did was to radicalize these grassroots. And so they go around with their trucks and their flags and they're menacing. And it takes a certain temperament to keep doing work and speaking out. We all get threatened and you just go on because if you give in, then they've won. So, you know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, there's been numerous stories of local school board members, you know, whose lives are threatened, their families are threatened. You know, these people, to your point, they show up with the trucks outside their homes and they say, I've had enough. I want to do my part, but I'm done. We saw Congressman Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio, you know, first term Republican congressman said, you know, I don't need my wife and kids getting threatened anymore. I'm out. And I don't want to blame him because I understand, look, you know, maybe if I was in his position, I'd do the same thing. But does that have a multiplier effect? Does it embolden the people who are doing it saying, we got another one, we hung another one on the wall and like, let's keep going? Or is it even that sort of organized? It doesn't have to be that organized. And it's not for me, for example, to judge anybody else because everybody has their own situations and their own tolerance. And it is really notable. What Trump did was to impose an authoritarian party discipline on the country, on the GOP and on the country. So it's not just Democrats getting threatened, it's above all Republicans. And some people found that puzzling, you know, why Republicans were like after the second impeachment vote, Representative Peter Meyer had to buy body armor. And it's because they are the most threatening because they won't go along with the new party. So it is a victory for that area to have people stand back because then the more people step down, the easier it is to, you know, have the ultimate goal reached. But it's not the last laugh. I think I wrote in one of my, I have a newsletter, Lucid, on threats to democracy. And I said, just because we lose some battles doesn't mean we're going to lose the war. So, you know, just as an aside, you do this, I believe, every Friday. Yes. And we'll get the website at the end of the show. But you had a troll come on your last Zoom, starts, you know, yelling anti-Semitic and Nazi things. I mean, 
that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Like show up, intimidate people, scare people, freak them out, get you to shut up, disrupt you and your guest, whoever it is, the discussion you're trying to have. There's no boundaries to this stuff. And that's what they want is to disrupt the people taking them on, the resistance, as it were. Yes. And I've been doing this since uh, April every week and nothing has happened. And then perhaps inevitably something happened. And what's interesting, because I've been studying threat for many years, writing about fascism and then writing about Trumpism, the purpose is not just to shut down the individual meeting, but to make the whole enterprise be clouded as though it's something to fear. And that regular people who are not used to getting abuses and threats like those of us who go on TV, they may be too scared. They think, oh, well, what if they somehow get my username? And so there's supposed to be this multiplier effect, this ripple effect. And so instead, it's very important to carry on calmly and do what you can to shore up your cyber fortress, but not let them silence you. I've been following your work for quite a while now, but the one thing that when I reached out to you to come on the show was something you just mentioned, which is this idea of projection, which is all of the things that we're talking about, the threats to violence, the end of democracy, are the things that Republicans and Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson and all of them, they project onto their opponents the things they're trying to do. Talk to us a little bit about that concept and how that's executed and to what effect. It's a really interesting in a destructive way concept, and it's used by many disruptors in history. But one of the things it does is authoritarians, they always tell you what they're going to do. And sometimes directly, sometimes there's not projection, they're just telling you. Like when Duterte ran for president, it's like, what political candidate does this? And he said to Filipinos, don't vote for me because if I win, it's going to be bloody. That's like fair warning. And so that's very important. And Trump did stuff like this too, because you want people to be intimidated from the very beginning. But the projection, it's smearing the enemy. But the diabolical thing about it is it's planting the seed in the public's mind that this is possible. So when Mike Flynn most recently, he said, well, the Democrats are trying to engineer an economic collapse and Biden's a dictator, this whole line. I wrote a post for my newsletter about Biden as an authoritarian. This is pure projection, but they're actually getting those concepts into the public mind. In fact, what they're trying to do by manipulating the idea of the supply chain crisis and inflation, this is a right-wing playbook, was used in Chile. I'm going to write more about this. And it's very shocking to see, you know, you think, okay, here's the playbook. And then out comes Bannon or Flynn or some other surrogate who says exactly what you already know they want to do, but blames it on the other person. I've talked about Bannon a lot, and maybe he's a prime candidate for this resistance that I talked to, which is, you know, he gets hauled into federal court and indicted on the contempt charge and comes out and starts saying, we need to remove the Biden regime. We're only just getting started. We need to organize and get going, right? You've seen nothing yet. And all of this idea that somehow he is somehow a victim, right? He's somehow a freedom fighter. And, you know, Joe Biden was sitting at the White House plotting to control Americans' lives when we know that, you know, the words are coming from Steve Bannon, as I've said, and the listeners are probably sick of it, a self-avowed Leninist, right? Someone who literally wants to burn the place to the ground and tells us that. If you have an authoritarian takeover in mind, 
and a third of my book is on coups and who knew it was going to be so relevant, right? The reason you have to plan for so long and, and involve elites and funders and stuff is not just because operationally you need that. It's because it's useless to do a coup if it's not going to be accepted. And so January 6th was very interesting because it failed, but it was accepted by the GOP, by all the elites. And so now it's gone into the system, the DNA of the GOP, that violence is a path to power. That's acceptable now. So we're living through these narratives that are designed to cultivate an appetite for a crackdown to stop the chaos, to stop the erasure of our freedoms, to stop socialism on the march. And they are very resolutely making violence and the idea of an emergency that only a kind of shock event can cure. And this has been, again, I show very in great detail in my book how it was used in Chile and it led to the coup. Every time it has a different outcome, we can't predict what it will look like, but I fear that this is what's going on. I see this quite clearly from my point of view. I mean, we've been talking about this as the LinkedIn Project for a couple of years, and you know, the rest of us have been following this, you know, even since Trump appeared on the scene. But why is it so hard? Let me start with the sort of politico media elite. Why is it so hard for folks who live and work in politics and government at a national level to understand what's going on and to come to grips with it? Is it a you know, ignoring it, it'll go away. Is it you're just crying wolf? It's not that bad. I mean, let's just take the January 6th committee, for example. I mean, from our perspective, you know, why aren't there hearings all day, every day? There's going to be somebody who's going to sit at that witness table. And if not, just have an empty placard, you know, but there needs to be some demonstration, I think, from Democrats who do govern they're like, it's not going to be stood for, that January 6th is not going to just go by. But it seems that the silence, you know, and we're now just nearly a year later, the vacuum has been filled and it's been filled by the big lie and the J6 and all that other stuff. And what we see coming from the committee, and look, I'm sure that they have a hard job, so I'm not going to criticize them too much, but just seems to be a lack of realization or any urgency about what's going on. I agree. What you see sometimes happen is when somebody comes in after a lawless person, they can uh, sometimes be overly cautious, not wanting to be tarred with executive overreach. So I think some of that is happening with the Department of Justice. I think there's threats. Who knows what is going on also to make them so cautious. But what you say is, yes, there should be hearings every day, it's very, very important, and we have lots of examples of truth and reconciliation commissions. And look how powerful it was to hear from those police officers, the Capitol Police. This was a day of reckoning, and their emotions are there, and you see them, and we need testimonies. And that's what the J6 Trumpist people are so afraid of. And in fact, they're more likely to try and shut everything down because they know how public opinion can shift and not in their favor. The other part of your question about the punditry or media, you know, there's always a bit of denial. And there are still people who can't quite see the United States as a place where it could happen here, you know, the idea that it can't happen here. And what my historical research shows is that almost every country was the country where it couldn't happen. 
the Chileans, like all over Latin America, there were coups. And the Chileans said, oh, we're not like those Guatemalans, those Brazilians. Our army respects the constitution. And they were very proud of this. And then look what happened. So there's some of that. There's also some of what do you do if you can't follow the bipartisan playbook? And here's where, comparatively speaking, we are at a huge liability because when you have coalition government, you know, we hear, oh, they're less stable, the government's always falling, but you have much more dynamism and mobility. If somebody comes, other parties can ally and prevent the strongman type person from coming to power. And that happened in Italy against Matteo Salvini. So when you have a bipartisan system that's supposed to be stable and famed for its stability, this is what people need to accept. One of those two parties is no longer in democracy. It is an authoritarian party, 100%. There's no aspect of the GOP today that's democratic with a small d. So then what do you do? So even if people realize that the system is broken, there's no third party. And so even all the never Trumpers, the people who don't recognize themselves, they don't have a home. So we're a bit stuck right now. And that's partly what you're diagnosing. The Lincoln Project here is trying to what we call a political Airbnb. You don't have to come live with us forever, but just come hang out for a couple of years. But, you know, that's a good question. And that homelessness thing is something that we've started talking about. We were invited to speak at the Cooper Union in February of 2020, and that was the basis of my speech, which is there were so many people like me who were, I guess we would consider ourselves moderate Republicans who now have no home. I spent two or three years, you know, I tried to start a new party, spent a lot of time in the independent reform space. As you can imagine, that's all tilting at windmills. Unfortunately, a lot of it is. Anyway, not that it's not worthy work, just very difficult. But what's the beginning of the recipe for 2022 and 2024? How do we find, if it's not a coalition government, then how is it a political coalition that comes together? You know, we always say we'll work with anybody from AOC to Liz Cheney. But how do we convince others, whether or not it's with old grudges, whether or not it's with massive policy disagreements, you know, maybe they just don't like each other, right? How do you convince people who otherwise don't agree on things that in this time, we must stick together? How do we do that? That's the key thing. That's the urgent question, because what history shows is the only way that authoritarianism can be turned back at the right moment is to have a unified opposition. And lack of unity has on the uptick of authoritarianism has doomed democracy like in Weimar Germany. And it's also allowed people to stay in longer. But for example, in, again, Chile is a really important country because Pinochet had to leave. He was voted out, which is very rare. And that only happened because everybody but the communists got together. So the most conservative Christian Democrats and the socialists all formed one giant coalition. And they all played together, even though they didn't like each other. So we have to do some of that. And, and even the Democrats, like AOC famously said that if she was in another country, she wouldn't be in the same party as Biden. But that's the only way forward, because there is no third party. It's not going to work. Independent reform, as you said, doesn't work. So the key is convincing people that we have so much to lose, that democracy really is teetering. And it's very difficult to convince people to mobilize, to keep things that they take for granted. But that's what we have to do. And each of us in our own way mobilizes and uses our knowledge to help the 
public shift their mentality about such issues. Right. And I mean, we see Texas and Florida is the genesis of what the country will look like writ large should Republicans retake House and Senate in 22, these key governor's races in the presidency in 24. You know, vigilantism, there'll be some level of lawlessness, there'll be chaos. But I mean, Ruth, to me, what it really is, is everything's arbitrary. Your life is arbitrary. Your life is forfeit if someone decides it's forfeit. Your career, your family, your business, your school, whatever it is, everything is determined by somebody else with whom you have little to no contact and to whom they have no accountability to you. How do you convince people of that? Like, I mean, we started talking about this earlier today is democracy is something we do take for granted because most of us never lived anywhere else. And, you know, as far as we've known, you know, the last 15 or 20 years, the government's always been a mess in some way or another. And the polarization has pushed us apart. So how do you convince an individual voter in a suburban district or precinct that this stuff does matter? That's a good question. And the Republicans have been geniuses at framing the issues around you're going to lose your freedoms, you're going to lose your individual rights, because that's actually how you have to frame it. What you said before, that power becomes unaccountable. And so everyone who's lived in authoritarian states say that the violence, the threat, the sanctions, the economic punishments that are meted out to businesses, it all seems very random. And when things seem random, that's very demoralizing to people. But that's how authoritarian states operate. People never know exactly why Putin has seized their business or Erdogan or Orban. So we have to let people know that the kind of stability that they're used to is not going to be around anymore. And I agree. I also see Texas in particular as a kind of laboratory of autocracy, including this stark reality of having your rights taken away, like reproductive rights. And it's not just the right taken away, but matching it with state-sponsored vigilantism. Yes. And unfortunately for us, because the true American exceptionalism being a mass ownership of guns, what I see evolving and worst case scenario is that we would have an electoral autocracy like Hungary, et cetera, but it would be backed up by a kind of extrajudicial violence, by vigilantism. Right. Sort of brown shirts. Yes. And that's what Trump has been able to do is to energize all those people. And that's what we see forming now at school boards. And that's why there's been a shift in the way of thinking about politics from Congress down to grassroots. You throw compromise and debate out the window and you have direct action, which means threat and violence to get your way. Totally random question. Why do so many of these people who attend school board meetings or march in the streets, why do they cover their faces? At some level, many times people who are doing extremist things, there's people in their family who don't approve or their employers, especially if they're resorting to violence and disruption. And in fact, one very effective thing is if you recognize someone, you let their employer know that this is what they're doing and that stops some of the behavior at the individual level. I mean, we'll be more frightened when they don't hide their faces anymore. And that's already happening around the country. Well, listen, let's hope that they put the masks back on, put the guns away, and maybe go and you know watch TV and drink a beer. Well, Ruth, I want to thank you for joining me today. Before we let you go, 
Tell us where our listeners can find you online about your newsletter and webinar and your book. So my newsletter, it's a Substack newsletter. It's called Lucid. It's on threats to democracy and uh, have live chats every Friday. And you can sign up for it on my Twitter account at Ruth Bengiat or at my website, www.ruthbengiat.com. And basically, that's also where you'll find my latest interviews. And those are the best places to go. Well, that's terrific. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Ruth, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been fascinating, highly instructive, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.